All right. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for joining us this morning. We're continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets this morning with a look at Habakkuk. Now, when I read about what the Israelites did to bring this judgment upon themselves, I just think, man, you guys are dumb. If you'd just paid attention and done what the Lord had told you to do, none of this would be happening. But I realize that I'm just as guilty as they are when it comes to disobeying God's commandments. So before we start, I'd just like to encourage everyone to really examine yourselves as we go throughout the rest of the series and make sure that we're doing everything that we can to follow God's commandments. Let's pray. Lord, Father in heaven, I just thank you very much for this beautiful morning this morning, a time that we can come together and fellowship as brothers and sisters. I just thank you that we can get together in a free nation and praise your name unhindered, Lord. I just pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds and that we would really um, be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word, Lord. I just pray that uh, these words this morning would be your words and not my words, Lord, and that they would uh, touch the hearts of those listening. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, not a lot is known about Habakkuk. He's not identified by his father like the other prophets or by his country of origin or town of origin like Micah. Uh, none of the other prophets write about him in their books. And the only place he's mentioned in scripture is his book. And he's mentioned twice, once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 3. Other than that, nowhere else in the whole Bible. The only other writing that his, he's mentioned in is one of the apocryphal books, Bell and the Dragon, where he's said to have given nourishment to Daniel when he was in the lion's den. But that book's not really known for its historical reliability. So. Uh, this book is not addressing the people of Judah directly, like the other books. This is more of a dialogue between God and Habakkuk, which... It's kind of interesting because Habakkuk actually means embrace. So it's kind of a, a wrestling embrace or uh, to hold on to someone, um, which kind of plays out throughout this book. Uh, it is thought that he was a temple musician because the third chapter is written as a psalm of praise. But again, not a whole lot is known about him, so that's just a theory. No references are made to which kings were in power at the time of his prophetic office. And in fact, this is a topic of debate among the scholars. Now, there are three schools of thought on this. The first one, uh, which is held by the majority of the scholars, is that he was in his prophetic office during the reign of Jehoiakim, whose reign started in 609 B.C. Uh, the second school of thought is that his reign was, or he was during the reign of Josiah, whose reign was from 640 to 609 B.C. And then the last school of thought is that he was in his office during the time of Manasseh, who was the most wicked king of Judah. And that was 687 to 642. Um, personally, I hold to the thought that he was in time during Jehoiakim's reign, and I'll get to that more when I cover that. A little background on the 
um, Judah at the time. The conditions in Judah were much the same as they were in Micah. It was a time of chaos and violence. Um, everybody was out for greedy gain, and they weren't treating each other with the loyalty love that was laid out in the covenant, covenant that I covered in the book of Micah. This was a time when only a small remnant was following the law faithfully, and even a small, smaller remnant was following Yahweh faithfully. So now that we know a little bit more about Habakkuk and the conditions he faced during his time in prophetic office, let's make our way through his book. Now the book itself is laid out pretty simply. It's two cycles of Habakkuk questioning or complaining to God, and then God answering him. And then he ends the book with his psalm of praise. So let's start at the beginning. His first complaint. He, uh, he lays out his first complaint uh, after a time of crying out to the Lord. It almost seems like he's been crying out to the Lord before the start of this book. And uh, he has three points in his first complaint. How long will I have to wait? Why do you tolerate the wrongdoing? And the law is paralyzed. So his first point, how long shall I wait? Is stated in verse 2. Now, I know that we've all kind of felt like this or prayed like this in many times, in many ways. Um, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? He then moves into a second point, asking God why he tolerates the wickedness that is happening during this time. Now, I want to make it clear that God never in any way tolerates sin. But Habakkuk knows that. He's just asking why God hasn't punished the sin during this time. You see this in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And finally, his third point, the law is paralyzed. He's letting God know exactly how bad the conditions are at this time. There was no one who loved justice, so the law has become perverted. Verse 4, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This again reminds me of how things were in Micah's day. No one loved justice. God was saying that the ones who were supposed to know justice loved the evil and hated the good. The heads were giving judgments for a bribe. There was no justice during this time. Now these are some serious complaints that God has, or Habakkuk has brought forth to God. But God is faithful to give him an answer even if it's not the one he's going to like. God's first response. If there's one thing that we can always count on from God, that's an answer. It may not be the answer we want, but we are going to get an answer. God starts out by telling him that he's doing a work that he would not believe if told. Verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God then tells him he's going to punish the wickedness of his people 
by raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. This is going to be the judgment for the wicked way the kingdom of Judah had been living. Now I want to remind everyone that this is not a judgment merely for a short time of sin. It's been nearly a hundred years since Micah first issued this warning to the people of Judah. And it's been hundreds of years since God's given them a chance to repent, but they continue to fall away from him. So God has just informed Habakkuk that he is raising up the Chaldeans to come and take them captive. But he also wants him to understand how fierce they are. This is not merely a nation coming to wage war on them and they might have a chance to fight them off. No, this is going to be complete and utter destruction. This is a no-win situation. And he lays out just how fierce they are in verses 6 through 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not of their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. He goes on to describe their horses as faster than leopards, fiercer than the evening wolves. They fly in like eagles, swift to devour. And if it hasn't become quite clear enough how bad the situation is, he really drives it home in 10 through 11. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They blow by like the breeze. This is nothing. It doesn't matter how protected you are. They're going to get through. These are men who are fierce warriors. Men who live by the sword. Men who will stop at nothing to get what they want. These are evil and wicked men. So there's Habakkuk's answer. This is how God is going to deal with the wickedness of his people. Like I said before, this is not the answer Habakkuk was looking for. Which leads to his second complaint. Habakkuk realizes the punishment that he's asking for, for the wicked, is coming. But he's not happy with the way that it's coming. He starts out by informing God that he understands that he is God and has ordained the Chaldeans as a punishment. And we see this in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. But he immediately returns to asking God why he's doing things the way he's doing them. I just want to reach into the book and grab him and shake him around a little bit. Be like, look, he's God. He can do things whatever way he wants, and that will be the most perfect way. I realize, again, that I don't do this in my own life. I try to question God and uh, tell him that the way he's doing things aren't the best way or that they need to be done my way. And I realize that I should trust him. He is God, not me. And his ways are perfect. But anyway, back to the point at hand. Uh, Habakkuk asked God how we can use more wicked nation 
to judge a more righteous one, which is funny because the nation of Judah wasn't really a righteous nation. Um, in verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And this time Habakkuk becomes a little bit more demanding. He's like a child waiting for an answer right away. He gives God the good old, I'm going to hold my breath until I get what I want. We see this at the beginning of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And again, God is faithful to give a response. Even though he's not asked in a manner of humility, he still calmly, as in dealing with a child, just tells Habakkuk what his plans are. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that I'd explain why I hold to the school of thought that he served during the time of Jehoiakim. And these next couple of verses are why. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision down. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now something to keep in mind while reading these verses. The first wave of captivity into the, king, uh, the kingdom of Judah, into Babylon, was in 597 B.C., and if Habakkuk was in his prophetic office during the reign of Jehoiakim, that's a short time, just a few short years after God is telling him to write this down. I don't think God's saying, it will not delay if it's going to be 40 or 50 years. No, this is less than 10 years in this happening. But again, this is just the conclusion that I've come to after studying the subject. In this round of uh, God answering Habakkuk, he reassures him that no matter who the wicked are, they will be punished for their sin. God starts out with a very bold statement about righteousness that from Israel's standpoint uh, just doesn't really fit with the law. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is new covenant living being taught under the old covenant. It's almost like God was trying to tell them this. And on an interesting side note, uh, this section is written to the Babylonians. And of course, this is a warning to anybody who lives this way. Uh, but most scholars believe that this is written to the king of Babylon, or about the king of Babylon. And at the time, that was Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm sure we've all heard how, the stories of how proud he was and how much of a wicked man he was. And after a time of great tribulation, when he was sent out into the wilderness, became a wild beast and ate grass of the field for many, many days, he came to live by faith. Now, I found this great breakdown of the next section, and it's going to be on the screen in back of me. And this is the woe to the Chaldean section. And I'm sure... None of you wanted to hear me read all these verses, so that's why I did this. 
But I do want to challenge you to go through and read those on your own because uh, there are some great warnings in there. First section, 4 through 5, woe to the proud. Second section, 6 through 8, woe to the greedy. Woe to the dishonest in 9 through 11. Woe to the violent, 12 through 14. Woe to the sensual, 15 through 17. And woe to the idolater, 18 through 20. Now at this point, Habakkuk finally understands that God is sovereign and he is truly in control. This realization makes Habakkuk offer up a psalm of praise. This psalm is a list of the righteous acts that God has done for his people. And it is truly a reminder of how awesome our God is and how powerful he is. Now I thought it was important that this whole psalm be read um, so that we can reflect on who our God is. But instead of me reading the whole thing, uh, I've asked a couple of the men to read it for us. Ethan? A list of mighty acts that our God has done. Making the sun and the moon stand still in the sky during a battle. The plague on Egypt. The pestilence that came behind him and swept through Egypt. Delivering them on his chariots of salvation. In the closing verses of this book, you see that Habakkuk truly understands that no matter what the circumstance 
If we wait on the Lord and trust in Him, He is faithful to sustain us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So what can we learn from Habakkuk? First, God sometimes seems to be inactive, but he is involved. We see in chapter 1, verse 12, that God was using the Babylonians to accomplish his purposes. Second, God is holy. Chapter 1, verse 13, Habakkuk said that God could not approve evil. This should be a sobering reminder to us as we struggle with temptations and sin. Third, God hears and answers prayers. Fourth, God sometimes gives unexpected answers to our prayers. When we pray, we usually have in our minds the way we want God to answer. And when he answers differently, we think that he hasn't answered at all. But fortunately for us, God has given us the Holy Spirit as an intermediary, praying according to the will of God on our behalf because we don't know how to properly pray. Fifth, God is just and God is good. He will judge the wicked, and he is concerned for the righteous. Sixth, the righteous live by faith and faithfulness. This means we really believe that God is good and God is just, and we live accordingly. And last, God wants us back. Look at the lengths he's willing to go to get the nation of Israel back to him or to bring Nebuchadnezzar to him. After a time of sin and hardship and heartbreak in my life, one of my good friends gave me uh, this comforting thought. God, God wants you back, Jake. And he's willing to remove any obstacle that gets in his way. So I'll leave you with this. Learn from the nation of Israel. Do not harden your heart or be thick-headed. Truly lean on God and live by faith. Lord, Father in heaven, we just thank you so much again for giving your word to us, for freeing us from our bonding of sin, Lord. I just pray that we would learn from the examples of the nation of Israel, that we would not harden our hearts or be thick-headed, but that we would truly trust in you and lean on you and live by faith, Lord. I just pray that as we go back to our daily lives, we would not forget what we have heard today, but that it would just grow in us. That we would truly live our lives for you, Lord. I just thank you and praise you in your son's holy name. 
Amen.